Alexa, what is the best podcast in the land? Here's pulling back the curtain podcast registered from Amazon Music. Playing the latest episode. This podcast is sponsored by Sumato Coffee. Sumato Coffee believes that coffee should be unique and high quality from bean to cup. Beyond that, it starts to become stale. At Sumato Coffee, they're incredibly concerned and transparent about when your coffee is roasted. That's why they put the roast date right on the bag. Pulling Back the Curtain podcast listeners receive a 20% discount off their order by using promo code BALLERSCOFFEE. To learn more about Sumato Coffee, please visit them at sumatocoffee.com. That's S-U-M-A-T-O-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. What's happening, people, and what you know good? We'd like to thank you for listening and spending your time with us. This is Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast, the most provocative, the most exciting, the baddest, baddest podcast in the land. We come with the dopest topics, hitting with the rawest opinion while giving you the straight-up facts. No fake news here. I'm Jules. Oppress. We give sight to the blind, ladies and gentlemen. Alexa, what is the baddest podcast in the land? Here's Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast registered from Amazon Music. Playing the latest episode. Bonus episode time. Let's get it, press. On behalf of the Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, we want to offer you our sincerest gratitude and appreciation for your support of our show. We were nominated for a Discover Pod Award, humbled and beyond just, man, amazed at all the support and outreach that we received from you, our listeners, over the course of this season. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode, the best of season two of the Pull Back the Curtain podcast. Man, season two, we are back. What's good, Jules? Oh, man, I'm winning, man. Winning. That's right. It's been a minute, man. Talk to him. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been, yeah. What's going on, people out there, man? We'd like to thank y'all for, hey, keep rocking and rolling with us, man. I love it that we're back, man. It's been, like you said, it's been a minute for us, and and we're going to come back badder and better than ever. That's right, man. Listeners, welcome to Season 2 of the Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, man. We want to, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this thing, Jules, we want to give a little shout-out to to Lucy. Uh, She's the newest member of the Pulling Back the Curtain family. Listeners, you heard her on our open. Thank you so much, Lucy, for being a part of the family. Thank you for your contributions. We appreciate it. In this situation, man, we're just going to pull back the curtain on how Tulsa's Greenwood District grew to become a haven for Black entrepreneurs uh, at the beginning of, of that century. You know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, in that, in that, in that area, was flourishing um, huge oil industry, booming oil industry in that area. And it had a major uptick of, of Black sellers coming around at that time, you know, moving and, and, and starting a new life there. Uh, one particular, uh, one person in particular, uh, O.W. Gurley, Ottawa, W. Gurley, uh, in 1906, a wealthy African-American landowner, he had moved there. Well, he kind of, at first he moved a little out, the outskirts of it, 80 miles from Tusa, where he opened up a, where he bought a whole bunch, 40-acre land. He had some land and he was, he was a school teacher and he was a farmer and he had a store and stuff like that. So he was... He was doing this thing. He took the blueprint from there and he moved over to uh, the Greenwood district and opened up, had acres of land he had had purchased and bought and stuff. And 
And what he did, he not only purchased and bought this land, but he created something, he wanted to create something for black people to help other black people. When I think of today's times, a lot of us forget where we come from because a lot of that stuff has been taken from us and a lot of people have been brainwashed and, and, and you know, programmed. And they don't realize they do come from greatness and that we are a people that have overcome a lot of things. And when I basically had learned about this Black Wall Street situation probably about four or five years ago, I was kind of angry with uh, with the schools that I've gone to because this was something that I did not mm -hmm. learn in school at all. I was just, dude, I was just about to say that. You brought up the point, too, that you said that as uh, our people became, you know, less, uh, you know, segregated, right? That's when we started to see the Black community kind of splinter, right? We stopped working together. We stopped helping each other because at this time, Greenwood, what it represented to those people was a place to escape being oppressed, right? Whether that oppression mm -hmm. was happening economically, socially, or politically, right? And so this Greenwood district was an economy born <laughs> out of necessity. Um, and to be honest, Jules, it probably would have never happened or existed if it not were for the racist, uh, racism of Jim Crow laws. We were turned down for, for loans, right? So a lot of mm -hmm. what they did here in Greenwood was, man, these guys were all self-sufficient. They figured it out, right? They went out there, they saw an opportunity, and they grew. They were able to take advantage of the resources that were around them. No, you, yeah, yeah, you're right. No, you're right. And, and like you said, the only re reason why, because, right, you didn't have that opportunity where you can go to any bank and stuff like that and get a loan or get this mortgage or this land and stuff like that. So it's almost like you have to be self-sufficient kind of do you go you on your own this has been the longest fucking election in the history of u.s elections and we finally have a winner god, joe biden has been elected number 46 all right man, what you think about that shit man i'm like man this is crazy well man congratulations big big shout outs to big joe biden and uh camilla harris man congratulations to both winning the president and the vice president and man i know you got some Big stuff to clean up, big mess on the floor. You got to mop up and stuff. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, we have company. You guys can do it. So, man, congratulations, you guys, for, for winning. Yeah, man. I mean, dude, Jules, we talked about on the podcast how important this election was. And it looked like our country answered the bell, right? This has been the most people that have voted in an election in history. And Joe Biden got the most votes ever in history. And yeah. what I will say about that is, that's huge, man, because that's going to show you that people took things seriously. Uh, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, we realize that this country got away from what it really what really mattered to this country. And I think that the American people want something different. I've been basically critical of Biden in his past to a degree. I'm going to say this. At least he's a decent man. And at least he seems like he stands for wanting to unite this country. And I'm all for that because after what we've seen these last four years of this divisiveness and this division, this country has never been so divided. And this is speaking about a country that's been steeped in racism and civil rights injustices. And the fact that I can say in 2020, we've never been this divided. That should tell our listeners everything that this four years has been in, in, as far as this country and its direction. He's made it OK for a lot of these people to bring out their closeted viewpoints about people and, and lives and, and things of that nature. And that's the thing that kind of makes me sad. And also, too, Jules, 
the fact that he would come out after probably what you said earlier and the fact that he probably got word that, hey, man, this ain't going to look so good for you once these bail in and these after T ballots come in. Mm-hmm. So then what does he do? He goes to the Trump playbook, right? Then he starts saying, I'm being cheated. Uh, these Democrat uh, governors are cheating. They're still in the election for me. But it's so misleading because these states that he's claiming that the Democrats are stealing from him are led by Republican governors. So what the fuck is he talking about? It's so misleading, bro. It's, it's misleading. And I've noticed that not only the networks, but social media, they're not allowing him to put out misinformation anymore. He sent out like a series okay. of tweets this week and Twitter, they took him down. And everything mm-hmm. about this guy is not being presidential. Man, I agree with you. I agree with you. The thing that messed up Trump was himself. He wasn't a leader. He didn't. He only lead. He's a leader to a certain certain um, group. So a certain group, he's right. a leader. But not leader of all people. And, and that's the thing he needs to understand and realize what happened. He didn't handle COVID well. He didn't ha- handle the, the race relations well. There's scandals and stuff that he that was going on and didn't handle those well. You know, as a leader, you, you must learn how to be gracious and empathetic and sympathetic and and know when to speak and when not to speak and and stuff like that. You know, the qualities of, of of a leader, you know, you must be humble and and things like that and also take charge and also know when to say, hey, listen, you know what? I messed up. There's loopholes in the system. So I'm like, oh, OK, if I can have two two grams and, and less is just a ticket. OK, I'll just carry this. But what are the ramifications? And uh, will you get help and stuff like that is the question. Now, some people who doesn't, you know, say get exposed to drugs stuff like that don't stop at just this one thing they always you know for the most part go and ex- experience and venture out and we see overdosing we seeing bad dope and stuff like that where people ODing and dying and stuff like that so I'm just kind of curious on what's the angle here because it seemed like to me it's just you know I know they're saying that you know this right here that we treating this as a uh, a health disorder than uh, a criminal act but I understand, and that's cool, but what I'm running for, for the people, the ones who get called in just a ticket, is that it? Or do they have to do some type of programs or whatever the case may be? Um, so those are the, the questions that raised when I read about this. No, I hear you, man. I would say for me, um, I look at it differently, man. I, I see that the fact that they're removing penalties for possession of small amount of drugs. And you brought up the point where, you know, even in today's world, you know, you go to like the drug court system, right. And, you know, you don't get locked up, locked up. But at the same time, there's Hmm. still a lot of people of color that basically these drug possession charges and laws have really affected negatively over the years. Right. And so the thing that you brought up that I agree with is the fact that I think with them decriminalizing some of this stuff, it does allow people to kind of take control of their addiction, right? Because instead of like criminally, like kind of like putting people away, maybe it allows these individuals to go to some sort of a a drug treatment program, right? I also think that it kind of takes the stigma away from people that suffer from substance abuse. The family believe it could be racially motivated. And law enforcement is pretty much, they saying it's failed to act in hours of him being missing. Now, two weeks has passed and, you know, at that time, he was still missing. And uh, when they did find him, it was it was, his answer, it was questions that needed to be answered. It was like, well, you know, first, why it takes so, you know, took so long and stuff as far as the investigation. So it's a lot of stuff that's, you know, questions that need to be answered. And I'm just, 
I'm just sorry and just I know our hearts and, and, and prayers goes out to his family here because it's something that you don't want to see, especially read and stuff like that and hear because you when you hear this and see this, you you automatically, we as us uh prayers, we think about what Emmett Till and yeah. how he was from Chicago and he visited some peoples in down south and you know, you, you know the story and stuff like that. And yep. cats came and took him out and did what they did and 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 you know a mother lost a son and stuff and yeah, they they lynched that poor kid, and yeah. I think that's what happened to this Bobby Charles kid. Yeah. Because when we see the pictures that were posted online, and to me, I'm really disappointed in that police department down there because the family reached out to the police when he went missing, and their mm-hmm. response to the family was, oh, he could be out at a football game or something, you know, don't worry. But they didn't even offer to go look for the kid. They didn't even send out an Amber Alert, right? Mm-hmm. Then, days later... He was found in that field with his body beaten and burned, right? And the police ruled it a death by drowning. It closed, it didn't even enter an investigation. So when I hear that kind of thing, I'm like, this feels like 1955 all over again, yeah. because that's what they did to Emmett Seals' mother. And that's why she mm-hmm. had to post that picture where people could see what her son looked like. My thing is, why does a mother have to do that? Why does she have to share her grief with the whole world just to get people to act and actually care and give a fuck to do their jobs? It's a done deal. Nothing he can do or say recounts. I think Georgia already recounted it and said Biden's still the winner. Yeah, they did recount. Yep. I mean, he got to resort back to this to keep himself relevant and keep the hope alive to his constituents and stuff like that. But it's a done deal. I mean... So what's his plans? Keep many Democrats uh, away from voting, take away votes from the mail-in if if it if yeah. it wasn't at, Black you know, if it wasn't, yeah, if it didn't come in before, was it before 8 o'clock or, or count it after 8 o'clock or something, it should be disqualified. And <laughs> Prez, I don't, even know, I don't even know what to say on it. I mean, it's just, it is what it is, man. I mean, dude, you, you lost, like we said last time, Listen, bro, you have four years, have a good Thanksgiving, have a good Christmas, and just on Jan- on January 20th, whenever the inauguration is, just shake the man's hand. You ain't even got to concede, unconcede. Well, you, you know, know what? what? That, be, that, would be the, that, would, that would be the honorable thing to do. But you know what? We're it, it showing it. Right. We're seeing his true colors, right? Right. He's not going to do it. So I, I'm not even looking for him to do it. Just. This is my take, man. Where are the Republicans at right now? I'm like, you guys see what this guy's doing, and they've been really silent. And that says a lot. Because I always tell you this, Jules, Mm -hmm. when things are going on, you watch the people that aren't saying anything. Those are the ones that you need to be worried about. Because they see all this stuff that's going on, and they haven't done anything to step in and just say, hey, you know what, this isn't right. I think Mitt Romney was about the only one that kind of spoke out against what Trump's been doing. But this guy's basically trying to undercut our democracy. He's been on the field for a long time with that, just trying to get black people, try to get uh, black people the right to vote and register and stuff like that, so their voice can be heard. Absolutely. So what ended up happening was as the tensions started to mount a bit, right? So as those organizations started to work together, right? Because remember mm-hmm. how we talked about in previous episodes about how those individuals back then mobilized; they were strategic, right? And with that they had a plan of attack for how they were going to try to overcome this situation. So what ended up happening was, is 
these organizations decided to merge together and said, we're going to go on this march together. We're going to basically go side by side and we're going to build awareness to our voters' rights um, and the fact that we don't have those rights right now in this part of the country. So the Governor Wallace at the time, who's basically known as being a very you know, racist individual, what he did was he actually ordered his state troopers at the time to use whatever measures necessary to prevent a march. Because there were approximately 600 voter rights activists that were setting out to march those 54 miles, right? While they were marching through Selma, no one bothered them. They were fine. They were, they were good to go when they were marching through their areas. But what actually happened was, Jules, is as they began to get closer to Montgomery, Right. We know that the bridge that everybody saw in the movie Selma that has uh, Edmund mm-hmm. Pettus's name across the, the right? Edmund Pettus Bridge. Yep. Yep. Well, mm-hmm. basically, when John, the late John Lewis and uh, Jose Williams, who led this this march, when they looked across the bridge, they were greeted with these state troopers that were basically had billy clubs. Uh, they had basically sheriffs that were behind them on horseback uh, that wore like riot gear. Uh, basically, they were ready for a battle. Right. So that was their response to 600 people that were peacefully demonstrating and wanting to build awareness to their rights as basic human rights to to uh, to be able to vote. But what ended up happening was even before that part of the situation, uh, Jose Williams uh, basically said that one of these sheriffs basically told them that this is an unlawful assembly and that you need to disperse. You guys need to go back to your church or you need to go back home. And basically what those gentlemen did is they stood their ground and they said, can we have a moment with you, right, to speak? Basically, the sheriff said, we've said all we need to say to you. And then, like you said, they pushed through the crowd. And then basically what ended up happening, all hell broke loose, right? So what happened was these individuals attacked this crowd of peaceful demonstrators, hit them with billy clubs, sprayed them with tear gas. I mean, listen to this. These are individuals that were just fighting for basic human rights, and they were attacked, treated like animals. Actually, you know what? Animals were treated better than that, the way that these individuals mm-hmm. were treated. 17 individuals ended up in the hospital. John Lewis was beat over the head multiple times in this situation. He testified in court that as he tried to get up off the ground, another sheriff walked up and hit him in the head with a baton. This is the way that people were trying to fight for their rights were treated. Just, you know what, people, just just picture that. I mean, this ain't one of these feel-good episodes. This is an episode that happened as a part of history and a part that will happen to our ancestors and stuff back in the days when we just wanted, just, just wanted equal rights, the right to vote. The first thing that I wanted to touch on, and I got a lot of shit to say about this one. <laughs> What's that, man? Man, that fucking Kyle Rittenhouse making bail, bro. Uh huh. I was not surprised when I saw your boy Ricky Schroeder from Silver Spoon. <laughs> I was one of the ones that fucking helped this kid get out of fucking jail, man. I'm like, dude, it, it's just par for the course, bro. Just I expected that from that kid. When that when I was watched that show, we were kids, and that son of a bitch had that damn train damn. in his crib. I was like, man, fuck this dude, man. So anyway. <laughs> you look at this situation in its entirety, man. It's it's crazy that a guy like this is being celebrated as a hero and people aren't looking at the situation for what it was and what he did, right? So mm. point blank, he crossed state lines with a firearm. Mm-hmm. I don't know who brought him there. They, you know, that part is still under uh contention. But the simple fact of the matter is the 17-year-old kid carrying a firearm 
And you got to be 18 to do so. And you got to be 21 to possess a FOIA card. I'm sure Jules will correct me if I'm wrong on both of those things. Kid mm. 17, whether you say it was self-defense or not, the simple facts of the matter is this fucking kid had a firearm that he shouldn't have had possession of. The fact that these people in this country are making this kid a hero, the bail was set at a high level. And that there are people in this country that raise money not only to get him released from jail, but they also raise money for his defense. And he killed two people. Mm-hmm. Kyle Rittenhouse shouldn't have been, if he was, he, okay, let's let's just say, he went there supposedly to help protect businesses and property. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, what, that's what he's saying. Yep. Damn. Okay, so I can only take him, that's what he said. Okay. All right, Granny, if you want to do that, fine. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not a fan of people destroying business and property and stuff like that. I I I understand. Okay, I get. It. But do you need a do you need a rifle? I think you kind of lose the message if when you bring in when you bring in a weapon like that to that. Now, granted, it's hostile. Now, if you wanted to carry a concealed weapon, maybe a, a handgun or something like that, if you want. But then again, this kid's 17, so it's kind of Okay, where's the parents have to say, hey, listen, you know what? Nah, we're going to leave that alone, man. This, that's not your house. Stay your ass at home, son. Yeah, yeah, that's not your house. Let them deal with that. It was in Kenosha. And I've been to Kenosha. Kenosha is a good spot. Me, personally, the parents should have stepped in and told them to stay at home. It is what it is. He went out there, he had that firearm. Okay. Like you said, man, I'm like you. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. So this, this is my thing about this, man. Mm-hmm. You know, People have all this fake outrage over destruction of buildings. I mean, you just brought that up and, and the things mm-hmm. that happened during the civil unrest. Fuck that shit. This man killed people. Mm-hmm. I don't give a fuck if he was getting his ass whooped. Mm-hmm. You know, self-defense is one thing. Fucking fight. Mm-hmm. What happened to that? Remember back in the day, you and I, we got into with people. What happened if there was a confrontation? The first thing you're doing is you're going to shoot somebody, bro? Right. I'm not right. Exactly. That's why I said... He should have stayed at home, but if yeah. he didn't, if he went there, he shouldn't have that gun because you only you sending a bad bad message anyway. While you standing out there with it, you talking about protection buildings that's not yours and property and stuff. It's not yours. It's not your house. If you want to help, that's fine. You know, that's fine to help to kind of keep the peace, talk people down and stuff like that, break up fights or whatever the case might be. Tell people, hey, don't throw that stuff in there, okay? But when you send a bad message, when you stand out there with that with that assault rifle. So now you got this kid walking around with this goddamn AR. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, it's no surprise to your point, Jude, that something kicked off. You know, whether, you know, people were fighting with him or whatever the case may be, all I know is that two people are dead now and another person got injured. Malcolm said this years ago, he stated about, you know, some people need to be re- re-educated on things so that, you know, racism, that they have it in their heart to be to be eliminated. And he talk about the media as the most powerful entity on earth because they control the mind of the masses of the group here. We put stuff out that way about a group or or or, or a gender, whatever the case may be. You're, you're kind of shaping some people's minds that way if they're gullible and they and they blind and they can't you know read between the lines and see things and view things for themselves. You kind of put out this bad, like I say, this stereotype that oh well, make, oh okay, so. The black father's not in the household when you look at this ad. And those right. are things that have to have to be eliminated and say, well, no, no, the women, the women, the black women don't have birth by themselves. They need a man. So, I mean, so, so yeah, like you said, Prez, man, there's, there's some things like 2020, we, you, you got to be better. You got to be better than this. I, I, you know, I get it. You know, Burt Bees, they said, you know, they sorry for the hurt image that they had caused and they recognized the 
importance of portraying family in a way and that doesn't promote harmful, harmful stereotypes and stuff like that. But like we said, somebody in there saw that picture before they went to the press and was like, yeah, you know what? This ain't going to go over too well. But they say, ah, forget it. What you know about it, Rookie? You don't know what you're talking about. Send it anyway. So those are things we just got to get better. And then this should this should be a lesson to every other uh, people out there who's promoting, selling things to, you know, just be more, just be more aware and cognitive of, of what you're doing and in the unbiased type of uh, <laughs> approach here. Yeah, man, because I would say I wish this was the first time that something like this has happened, but it's not. Mm-mm. Macy's had a situation happen like this a couple years ago. Um, and they also posted an ad where basically they had uh, the black family was the only one with the father not present. And I'll just say this point blank. Representation matters, but it also has an impact when it's not done correctly. Mm-hmm. So in these situations with Burt Bees and Macy's, they don't understand the damage that's done by ads that like go and reach millions of people. Shit, probably even more than that, right? And so mm-hmm. it's just dangerous. Very dangerous. You know who else is a bad boy? Oh, who who's that? Your boy Jake Paul. <laughs> man, Prez, oh, what, man. What, what, hey, Prez, what happened, man? <laughs> I'm going to tell you what happened. <laughs> what happened was Nate should have had his ass in that ring. Now, yeah. let's just be honest. That Paul kid, he's actually fought before. Mm-hmm. And so when you go into the ring, and, and, and you know this just like I do, because we both box, mm-hmm. that ain't no sport that you play around with. You can't play box, bro. And okay. so it's one of those things that you could tell that Nate didn't have proper training. And while I loved his aggressiveness, bro, <laughs> that fight shouldn't have lasted as long as it did with the way that Nate was just running in on him like that. I'm like, bro, you don't run up on somebody like that and don't defend yourself. I was like, you know what? I heard Kryptonate. Kryptonate said that he was training every day, two times a day. That's what I heard. That's what I, I, I read. Or her, okay. rather. Okay. Okay. What I saw out there, he reverted back to his street stuff because that's what you do in the street. Now, he looked, that, that looked like one of those fights of Rita. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I was like, this is some easy work. Right. Said, who, run at, who runs at somebody with their hands down? With their hands down. And their chin up. Whew. I was like, man, what is he doing? I mean, running. Running. And I, that's one thing. The only thing that I give, I give, okay, I, I take that back. I give Nate props for two things. First thing for getting in the ring, because anybody that gets in the ring, that's a level of respect there. And the mm-hmm. second thing was his aggressiveness. But anything after that, Nate, bro, don't ever get in the boxing ring again, fam. Don't do it. No, no. There's a lot of conditions that are basically created. And then these things basically are passed down and instilled in people. And until people break these cycles, that's just how these situations will be. Man, you know what? When you was, when you was describing all of that prayers, I was going back to getting up in mornings and going to school and stuff and reliving and walking through those neighborhoods. And and let's be honest, people, if you're not, you don't know anything about, you know, saying the, uh, the hood and anything like that, you have to be educated. You have to be street smart. Because certain areas belong to a certain type of group, a uh, gang rather. And if you just happen to be wearing some type of clothing or you you wear some type of hat or a logo, remember, uh, Press, you wear them starter coats 
Oh yeah, shit! If you had, if you wore the Houston Astros, uh, yeah, with the with that stro- the, the star with that broke broken off. star, yeah, we. You just mind your business, just walking and stuff, and, and you know. But those are some of the conditions that a lot of us that grew up in in these neighborhoods. They'd be like, "Shardy, fix your hat." You'd be like, "Oh, I didn't realize my shit was right. messed up." <laughs> All right, I remember I had one cat. I was walking to the store, and he asked me, "Was I part of this gang?" And stuff. I said, "No." He said, "Yeah, what well, your hat was broke off a little bit to the to the left." I said, oh, no, man. Hey, man, good looking out. Because, no, you know, he saw it. I wasn't. I'm just going to the store, buy some candy or something. But, you know, these are some of the uh, uh, elements and stuff that we go through and stuff coming up, raising up in the hoods. And in, in order to, to get out and go, let's say, we have to go, present night, we have to take the bus, public transportation, go to school. Because first, my parents put me in, in public school. But they realized, knew I wasn't, not no knock to the, that public school at the time, but it wanted better. You know right. what I'm saying? Not and saying right, that rightfully so. You know, not saying that public schools are are bad or you not get a good quality education. You know what I'm saying? I'm not here to you know go into that, but they wanted better. You know what, Jules? I'll say it for you. Okay. <laughs> His okay. parents did not want him in that public school system, and thank God that they took him out of that system because yeah, that's another it. issue that goes on in this country, especially in Chicago when they've made education so elitist that the people that don't have don't have access to quality education and the people that have, their kids are the ones that are considered the gifted. And then we Mm -hmm. also saw how that played out with a lot of our classmates. It was a difference, right? While we were all still fortunate enough to all go to the same school, we went to private school, but their lives were totally different than the lives that we had. And that kind of played out over those four years, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was just interesting when I when I look back at that, because I would even ask like my mom and my grandma, I'd be like, hey, man, why is this stuff different? And a lot of times, man, they would give you some empty ass response because I don't even think they really knew or even understood even how to even answer that question. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, one story I'm going to tell before I'm going to let Jules get into some of the nuts and bolts of this thing. I want to tell a personal story about the first time that I bought a home. I was twenty five. At the time, I was living um, on the south side. Jules, you remember, I was on the low ends. Uh, but, you know, I was able to, like, stack up a lot of cheese. You know, I uh, I was only 15 minutes away from work because I worked downtown at the Board of Trade at the time. Life was good, man, because I had access to everything I needed, right? I had a car. So if, if, if the things weren't in that neighborhood, which they really weren't, well, I could drive five or 10 minutes to a different neighborhood, get what I needed. But the biggest thing for me was that convenience to get it to and from work, right? Being mm-hmm. able to have access to the loop. Mm-hmm. Also, being able to look outside of my window and having a view of the whole entire Chicago skyline. That was the dopest thing to me. So I said to myself, you know what? I'm tired of renting. I'm tired of basically throwing money away. Because that's kind of even at a younger age, I, I realized, like, no, no disrespect to people that have to rent, but I just always saw, like, you know what? I want to own something. So I started to work with realtors. And I said, hey, here are the areas that I want to look at. Every area that I wanted to look at was within that area where I was staying because I loved that commute, right, Jules? And Mm -hmm. I just loved that it was central to, like, my family. I had pretty much pockets of family all over, so I didn't have to go out far. Real convenient for you. It was real convenient. However, I ran into an issue with the banks. And so what happened was I noticed was that I couldn't get approved for a loan in the areas where I wanted to move. So I found this really nice, uh, really nice unit in Bronzeville, tall ceilings, 
man, like even had a room like where you could have like renovated and converted for maybe, you know, another apartment, man, where you could have rented it out. I mean, just a oh, big nice. ass space. Right. Nice. But guess what? Because the banks deemed that that property was going to need, you know, additional work done on it. They basically told me, hey, you know what? It's not going to appraise for anything close to what uh, you're going to need to borrow. I was just out of luck. Right. More of the story is I bought my first house. 45 minutes away from where I work. I moved out to the suburbs, right? So now that story I want you guys to realize is at that point in my life, all I wanted was to live in a place in my community, a place that was convenient for me to get to or from work. And I wanted to reinvest in my community. But the banks made it very difficult for me to be able to do so because they devalued the property that that I was interested in, right? So much so that they were like, hey, you know what? If you could come with $100,000, they will finance you. Kind of thinking back to Christmas, man. I mean, us as, as adults now, the holiday, sometimes, you know, it, it kind of loses its uh, its luster, right, if you will. Okay. But think back, man, when you were a kid, bro. What were some of, like, I guess some of your favorite memories as a kid coming up, man, oh, with, with Christmas? Man. Ooh, man, I got so many. But, man, I, I would just remember remember uh, calling Santa, those little hotlines. Yep. When you was a kid, man, you used to call him up and, you know, you know, at the time we didn't know it was a recording, but, you know, we talking to Santa and we make oh, a that list. Oh, that wasn't real? <laughs> what, 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 what? <laughs> I want to, I want to. Uh, <laughs> hey, little Lucy, if you listen to, do not listen to Jules. That recording is absolutely yeah. real. <laughs> you know what? You know what? It's so many people calling. I'm pretty sure he had helpers. You know what I'm saying? Maybe, maybe that's the wrong uh, word I would use. I would say he go. had helpers. He there had helpers. Go. Yeah. Because that's a lot so, of work for one man to do. You're right. Yeah. You're right. So he had helpers. So so we was calling and and, and listening and, and, and talking to Santa and stuff and writing our list. And like, Santa, man, this is what we want. We want this and that and this and that. And laying out cookies and eggnog and listening, putting up helping mom with decoration. And man, those memories just, I love this time of the year and stuff because it's, Everybody was so happy and just yep. cheerful and just you just people just want to talk and neighbors getting together, you know, having a little contest who got the best decorations and stuff like that. Or the, or yes, the sir. Yes, sir. Man. Yes, Ooh. sir. Well, you're great. Yeah, she used to throw down this. Oh, man, dude. Man, I miss her, man, because. Ooh. See, now we always have Thanksgiving over at uh, my grandmother's house. And my moms and stuff have Christmas over there. But my granny used to come over, man, and help. Man, my God. Man, if I can go back. You ain't got to tell me. I remember pulling up over there shit sometimes later on. Shit, that was meal number three. Man. (laughs) Dude, you remember, man? Yeah. Oh, man. I I just... I I still remember that, like, uh, being down in you guys' basement space down there, man, playing video games and watching games and shit, man. That That was the spot. Yeah, that was the spot, man. We used to get, man, dude. We used to go in that basement, all of us. We used to, and used to have that, uh, was it that, uh, the little four way or whatever the case may be, man. We used to be all on the games, been watching movies, eating, laughing, and stuff like that, talking, just tripping out, man, just having fun, man. Not a care in the world, just, just, just living life, man. And man, them times is good, man. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about that, I'm sitting over here smiling and shit, bro, because that's what life was yeah. simple, bro. Damn. Yeah. Damn. I would say for me, man, dude, like all I felt all of what you said there, man, because when, when I think about that shit, I think about Christmas Eve, man. You remember how Christmas Eve when you was a shorty, right? You know some shit's getting ready to pop off the next day, man. So you you be like going to bed, 
my mom, she used to do like the little cutout, you know, cookies and shit for Santa. Uh, she mm. would put out like a little eggnog, so similar to what you guys used to do, right? I would always get up in the middle of the night, like, Mom, if you listen, I'm sorry, but I used to get up in the middle of the night and eat the cookies. But, thank <laughs> <laughs> you, know. yeah. So, she probably always was wondering, man, where the hell, where the cookies go? Huh? It was me, but anyway, uh, I used to get up and do that. That was like my thing. I get up and eat the cookies, and then I go back to bed. And this, the, 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 the presents weren't even under the, under the tree yet, so it was always like, I always wondered. Where the hell Santa come drop these gifts off? Because this is like probably three in the morning. I had to snuck up out of uh-huh. here, ate these cookies, you know. Now let me ask you something. Now you ate the you ate, now didn't you put the cookies out for Santa? Yeah, man. But shit, man. I'm like, dude, <laughs> I went to sleep smelling cookies and smelling my grandmother's cooking. I was hungry, bro. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, man. It was I didn't drink his eggnog though. Yeah, I didn't drink his eggnog. Okay, all right. But definitely ate his cookies. So I, I did that. Um, but dude, man, just how you were talking about how your grandma used to throw down for Thanksgiving, man. My grandma, she used to have everybody over every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, right? And those were my favorite memories, man, as a kid, just basically because we didn't really get to see the family much through the course of the year. I mean, you know, everybody's working, doing their thing, right? People are all over the city, different states, but Thanksgiving and definitely Christmas was the the one time every year that you could guarantee that you were going to see certain people in the family. So that was always really exciting, right? And I used to love those memories, man, because we don't we don't really get together like that anymore uh, for the holidays, man. So I really mm. cherish and kind of hold on to those to those moments, man. I still mm. don't know what the motive was, Jules. I don't think we probably ever figure out because I don't know did he leave a right. note or anything. I don't I don't know. No. He- no, nah, he ain't leaving on nothing, nothing. But uh, like I say, the only nexus is, like you say, if he had thoughts about this this 5G and he parked himself right in front of the AT&T, maybe that's the only thing we have that we can go with. Yeah. It, it's just a really weird situation. But like I said, man, I'm just glad that he did it the way he did it. Like, as you say, he gave warnings that he's, he was telling people, mm-hmm. hey, this bomb's going to go off in three minutes. He was playing music. Like he made a scene enough that basically people would be like, "Wait, what's going on?" <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. How you? How you? Right. How you play some downtown? You're like, okay, you downtown Nashville. You're like, okay, this this dude over playing some music. You jamming and stuff. It's Christmas, and then he say, "Yeah, get out there. It's, it's, I'm, it's a bomb up here." Like, wait a minute. Yeah, you like, man, I was just bopping to the song. Right. I, I like that right. song, but I'm like, bro, why you play that one? Right. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Because now when I think of that song, now I'll be thinking about him. Yeah. Like, bro. Hey, Warner Boy, he's, he he did something now. So so Christmas time and that, and that song downtown. Yeah, man. Damn you, Warner. At the end of the day, man, like, like you and I both said, man, it could have been a lot worse because if this thing would have happened in the middle of the, of the day in downtown mm. Nashville, can you imagine? Right. Right. You don't understand why Mr. Hill was shot. I don't either because mm-hmm. the man was sitting in this car. I just mentioned to the audience, people could call the police on me. They'd be like, hey, I see this guy in this white SUV. He's just sitting in the car, right? But at the same time, the only thing that I, when I think of these situations is where were the de-escalation skills by this coy? Because you mentioned that he was on the force for 19 years. And you also mentioned your own expertise because you've been on the mm-hmm. field, field what, what, 15, yeah, 16 going, years? Yeah, on 16 years, yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to ask you this question. In that situation, when you pull up on the scene like that, even if the person may have something on them, and I'm sure you've been a part of those situations, mm-hmm. what is your thought process in that moment, Jules? So I'm officer court. I'm rolling up on that scene. Mm-hmm. On this scene particularly, yes. On this scene here in particular. I'm rolling up, brother sitting in his car in the garage or in the street, wherever. 
me, I'm giving verbal commands. You know, and, hey, what, and what are those verbal commands? Yeah, it, it'll be like, hey, what's up, man? What's go, what you got going on? Let me see your mm-hmm. hands. You know, and I have a partner, so my partner, whatever side I can't see, he or she can see because okay. we're tactfully approaching this person. Now I'm already prepared just in case some something went down. Let's say if I didn't have my gun out, I will always be prepared. So, and especially in, in a situation or a scene like that where you can look at a person's body language, read a person's body language and say, what's, what's, what's going on? This person's sitting in his car, he's sitting in his car, or oh, he's up to no good. That body will let me know, okay, something's wrong. I would just give verbal command. Now, we don't know because his body camera wasn't on and there's no audio. So far as with me, I would give verbal command. I would say, let me see your hands. And then when he showed me his hands, I see his one hand because he's showing the, the, the cell phone. Okay. I said, let me see your right hand. Let me see your hands. You got anything Anything else? You got any weapons, stuff like that? No. And then after I establish that the scene is safe, okay, I can put my gun away or the case may be I, I, I can, you know, say I can, I can calm down, you know, because there's no, no potential threat. So, Jules, and that's a lot of information you gave there. Thank you for kind of walking through because that's important for people to kind of understand from your viewpoint, kind of how you walk through that situation. So let me ask you when it comes to the body cam aspect. Mm-hmm. So the fact that these body cam was not on, you encounter those situations. You and your partner, is your body cam on? Like, what, what do you guys do when it comes to that? So it depends on, it depends on the situation. Like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes I forget to turn it on. Okay. I'm human. I'm I'm sorry. Sometimes something happens so fast, you jump out or or somebody come up, somebody approach the, the vehicle, and sometimes I just it happens. Okay. But then when I know when I realize it, I'll cut it on. Okay. Maybe this happened this it maybe this happened in this case. I'm not sure. Well, so what what I saw, because I, I went through the police report on this one, and they said that um none of the officers that were involved there had their cameras on until after Hill was shot. And then okay. they turned them on. So that's why I warned it in that situation. Because I understand, man, because you got to think about it. In these situations, you know, you got adrenaline that's going. It's a situation mm-hmm. where some shit's jumping off. So my thing is, I don't know how that works because I'm not in law enforcement, but I didn't know like how the training goes where how you guys are instructed to, now, to activate the body cam. According to the orders, we're supposed to turn them on for every, every situation. For every scene we go on or every call that we go on, we're supposed to turn them on. George Stinney Jr., 14-year-old kid from South Carolina, brother. This is not me being extra right now, but, bro, I fucking cried, man, when I read about this kid's story. And I'm going to try to, like, not get emotional on this podcast, but this is why I have the opinions that I have about this country and the way that they have used this death penalty. Because this is a 14-year-old kid that was accused of killing two white girls in the 40s. There was no proof of this kid doing this to them. The only thing that they said was they saw that these little girls stopped by and asked him a question. And I guess he pointed them up the road. And from the story that I read in this thing is even neighbors uh, said that those little girls left. They went about their way and they went to another house nearby in town. And then that's when they disappeared. But in this situation, this story with George, not only was he accused of killing these little girls because they did come up murdered, uh, you know, a day later. This 14-year-old kid, it took them 10 minutes to convict him not only of these murders, but to convict him of death. Now, you have to think about that situation. This is a poor black kid in South Carolina. We know that he had no representation. His parents were afraid to even come to the trial. When I look at this situation, I say, 
my God, this kid, 14-year-old kid that didn't even commit this crime, right, that they convicted him in 10 minutes. And we know that these jurors and the judge weren't his peers. I'm sure nobody in that jury pool looked like him. No. I'm sure no one in that jury pool gave a fuck about this kid. His life was basically nothing to them, right? It took 70 years for this kid to be exonerated. I want our audience to think about this. This kid was put to death in the 40s. He was exonerated in 2014. Uh, There was a lawyer that poured over all of the evidence in this case, and they found out that this kid was not the person that was responsible for these two girls' deaths. Now, Mm -hmm. Jules, I'm sure you probably also realize in this situation that (laughs) we've seen in history where, think about um, Emmett Till. Think about some of these people that were lynched. And I look at this situation with George and I say, this is nothing short of another lynching that took place. This is a 14-year-old kid that did not have the benefit of living his life. And this is the part that got me, man, when I was doing the research. You know how they ask uh, people what their last words are before they execute them, right? Right. They strapped this kid to the chair. He was so small and so little that they couldn't even get the strap on his leg. That goes to show you that that damn chair was not designed to be executed someone of that size and that age. And I'm sorry, but that shit fucking hit me, you know, because Mm -hmm. that's cruel. It's fucking cruel. They asked the kid, do you have any last words? And he said, no, sir. And he had a tear streaming down his face. And they said, do you want to apologize for murdering those two kids? He said, no, sir. Now, you got to think about it in that moment. He knows that he's going to die. And he still has enough of himself to still address these people that don't give a fuck about him as sir. I just want people to just think about that for a second. You know, um, listening to it and, and watching the footage and feedback and stuff like that, I was wondering, like, what Georgia? Georgia's been red since for, for a minute. Yep. And for, for Biden to get, you know, get the election from there, and then you have this runoff for the two Senate seats, like what happened? Because it hasn't been, I believe, it hasn't been blue since, since Clinton, I believe. That is correct. So what happened? So the state of Georgia, okay, had this majority vote required that, you know, each candidate must secure 50% of the vote. Okay. So they did their runoff and end up winning. And I was not surprised, but I was like, okay. So this pendulum has, has switched from red to blue all across the board, as you said earlier, giving them control of the, uh, of the Senate. Or about to. So, man, that was my thoughts of it. I thought it was monumental and excellent for the country. Yeah, man. Because the thing about it is the odds in history were against both of those candidates. Mm-hmm. The one thing with uh, with Ossoff, when he was going up against Kelly Loeffler, that was a, a race that she was the incumbent. But one thing that I wanted our audience to realize with her, she is also a minority owner of a WNBA team there in Atlanta, the Atlanta mm-hmm. Dream. She actually insulted basically her team because she condemned the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of mocked it. And she also said to the league that she didn't understand why they were basically going through and saying things about Breonna Taylor and to say her name and things of that nature. So I want to give a big kudos to those ladies in the WNBA, especially that Atlanta Dream team. Because as you mentioned, with Warnock's victory, he probably wouldn't have won if it weren't for them first because 
Mm-hmm. What happened was he was polling at 10% uh, before she, Kelly Loeffler made those comments about the, the movement, right? So do you know okay. what those players did? They got smart. They got strategic, and they mobilized. They started wearing shirts with Warnock's name on it, right? What does that do? When you have professional yeah. athletes and people with some sort of a profile, now people are sitting here like, who's Warnock? It builds right. awareness. It builds attention, right? That's what mm-hmm. me and Jules talk about on this show, using your platform. That's why we do pull it back the curtain because we're using this platform for good, right? Bringing stories to light. And so what these women did was really brought Warnock and made him a national name. Again, man, I'm just really, really encouraged by what I saw on Tuesday. Now, turning the page and looking at the events from Wednesday, Uh all that optimism that I had on Tuesday night, it went away in the blink of an eye. And I'll just say this, brother. All I saw on Wednesday was white privilege flashing on my TV over and over and over and over again. That is the stuff that we talk about on this podcast. When we talk to you guys about stories about redlining, when we talk to you about what took place in Selma, this is why we tell you guys these stories. This is why we bring these people to life because this shit still happens today. Now, you look at those Capitol riots. I'm not going to call those people fucking protesters. They weren't protesting shit. The person that they're sitting here fucking doing all this shit for lost an election. Buddy took an uh-huh. L. You ain't fighting no a fucking oppression. You ain't a fucking protester. You're a fucking rioter. You're a fucking terrorist. I'm going to call it what it mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's defined as domestic terrorism. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what it is. I don't want to hear anybody talk mm-hmm. to me. I had people next to me. Oh, man, those protesters. They weren't no fucking protesters. Keep that same energy when I was out here in Chicago, in fucking Oak Park, all over this fucking state, going to Kenosha, protesting an actual cause. That people will sit here and look at me sideways, thinking that I'm out here doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing. All I'm doing is trying to fucking fight for what's right. Now, you have people out here in this world, Jules, that were apologizing for what we saw on our TV screens on Wednesday. And I'm going to tell those people, if you happen to be listening to this show, that you need to really educate yourself on what's going on. Because what we saw on Wednesday, that is not it. That was an embarrassment. And I want you to realize, for anybody that sits here and defends what we saw, Think about the last time that something like that happened in our Capitol building. Was it 1812 when the British soldiers came here and invaded Washington Mm. and burned up shit? Yeah, burnt it down. We had enemies that came here and fucking burned our shit down. These were supposed to be U.S. citizens that breached the Capitol building, that are in the Mm. building fucking chilling on fucking lawmakers' desk, that are fucking stealing files, that are taking fucking selfies with law enforcement. What the fuck is going on in this country? Because I'll tell you one thing. When they had those Black Lives Matters protests at that Capitol building six months ago, those Capitol steps were fucking armed with the National Guard. They couldn't get anywhere near that fucking Capitol building. Why was that situation different than what we saw on Wednesday? That's what I want people to fucking think about. Because the shit is not right. This is a tale of two Americas. It's been going on for over 400 fucking years. And that shit flashed on our TV screens all fucking day on Wednesday. And then we finally had people that are starting to realize, man, this stuff isn't right. It's been not right. And I'll tell you one thing, Jules, and I'm gonna let you get in here, but I don't agree with public property destruction crowd. They were real fucking quiet on Wednesday. They were real fucking quiet on Wednesday. And I wonder why. This past week, we mourned uh, a year ago. Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, 
and those seven mm-hmm. other uh, people who climbed aboard that helicopter and they lost their lives. Jules, man, I tell you one thing. It doesn't feel like it's been a year since that day oh, uh, no. when they all passed. No, it hasn't. Man, press, it hurt. This is a person you looked at coming in the league out of high school. And you see him progressing and transforming to the man he is now. And to see his life been taken like that is just, it really hurts, man. And and in that part, and also seeing that his daughter left with oh. him, and then you saw the promise in her. And she was like a little miniature Kobe. The mannerisms, when you saw her on the court, you're like, damn, she's a little killer. <laughs> damn, right. That's you little see, mama. Right. That's <laughs> little mama, right? Man, it's hard, man. It's It's unfair. His resume on basketball, I mean, this brother here, 18-time NBA All-Star, five-time champion, two-time gold medalist. He had an Oscar for his short film, Dear Basketball. Mm-hmm. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame, posthumous, off the court, loving husband, married to uh, Vanessa for over 20 years. You know, he talked to Maria Shriver about being a father. That That was one of his, that is his greatest accomplishments. It's his daughters. Being a father was his greatest accomplishment. For Kobe, he exuded excellence. He was black excellent. He was and, somebody you can just just look to and just get inspired by. Absolutely, 100% mm-hmm. correct. I think the only thing that I wanted to add was just the interview where he talked about being a girl dad. That's always something that's going to mm-hmm. resonate with me. And mm-hmm. I, I, I looked at that and I said, he was proud. You know, they would always ask him, you know, would you want a son? And he was like, no, I'm good with my with my girls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one thing that I really respected, you you brought up his resume when he played in the league. The thing that impressed me even more about him was his second act, what he was doing with that basketball academy, what he was trying right. to do for women's sports. Right, right. That, to me, was where I saw, man, we would have probably saw an even greater Kobe, and it was just all snuffed out. Very, very short. And like you said, man, it's so sad, man. It breaks my heart, man. Like this week, the day of, you know, the anniversary of that, and I hate even using that type of terminology, but I was just like in a weird funk that whole entire day. For me, when I look at Kobe, to me, it was just more, much more than about him being a basketball player. It's the things that you brought up, a husband, a father, and just the greatness that I was seeing in him in his second act. The Oscar that you said that he he won. This guy, everything he touched, bro, it just seemed like, he was going to do it to the best of his ability, and he was going to just go to the next level. The legacy he left, I just think that he just truly inspired. A piece of what Kobe was trying to do is what I want to bring to this podcast every time we turn this mic on, bro, because he was just relentless at what he did. I came up in Cleveland, Ohio. I didn't come out to Chicago until I was, you know, I'm almost 20 years old, but I came up in Cleveland, and... You know, I got really involved with art at kind of a young age, and it was kind of like a means to an end for me, you know? Like, I was kind of a shy kid, and art was kind of an avenue where I could express myself without having a whole lot of people judge me. And I can do my own thing, and people just have to take it or leave it. And that kind of empowered me at a young age. So I kind of built my identity through art, even though I was doing sports and other stuff like that. The art kind of stuck. And it was just, you know, as a young kid, you know, I wasn't really like locking in on any sort of uh, medium or anything like that. At that point, I'm just kind of experimenting with, you know, self-expression, you know, using using different art tools. And that it just stuck with me, man, all the way through through high school and like all the way to the present and, and what I'm currently doing. I think just kind of a way of thinking about how to 
approach the world as something to explore and look at it from a different vantage point. Just the way my brain works, I'm always questioning things around me. And that's that's just kind of what led to what I'm currently doing. Okay. So when you was, uh, you know, entering like your college time, mm-hmm. what was your plan when you were kind of looking at yourself? Because I know you do have that artistic background. When you were in school, were you thinking that the arts were going to be your way in life or did you have a different path at that point in time in life? At that point, man, I was I was excited about the arts, but I didn't necessarily see a path forward with it without having something to support it. I knew of artists that were successfully, you know, living with without that the stigma of the, the starving artist paradigm, you know, but they, they were kind of abstract, you know, in the distant people that I thought were just the exceptions to the rule. So I, I went forward, you know, thinking about following my father's footsteps and going into, into business. Not that those are mutually exclusive, but at the time I viewed art as being like art and then business as being business, that you support your art with your business income. So I went to school, you know, in, in pursuit of a degree in, in business. That didn't go anywhere at all. <laughs> you know, not only did I didn't have the grades for it, man, but... Also, I was just bored out of my mind, you know, like I was sitting in there like this is not what I want to do. And I ended up drifting back towards my passion, you know, so there was a series of things that, that happened, man. Nothing mentioned what I mentioned earlier, man. It's like, like this series of like colliding with like difficult experiences, man. It's just after a while, your ego is like, man, dang, like I'm, I'm not I'm not going to be like pulling up the rear with this thing, man. I was an athlete as, as a young youngster as well. So it's like I'm not about to be the weakest, weakest link, man. That's just yeah. not. You know, this is not going to go down. Like I had a series of experiences. For one, I started attacking my deficiencies. Like, so I'm I'm a real big proponent of like self-work, you know, like they had books in the uh, office, man. I was reading through those books. Like, I mean, I was reading a book a week, just like flying through these books. And I'm still on that pace, honestly, man. Like I'm, I just attack deficiencies. Like, you know, the areas that I just can't live with. I got to attack them, man. I got to get better. I got to strengthen those areas. So I started doing that a lot. I was constantly going to one-on-one meetings, which was basically just a a time where you could go and talk with an advisor, somebody like Trez or one of the other managers in the the division that would sit down with you and you could just pick their brain and like talk through all your issues and whatever you wanted Mm -hmm. to discuss to try to overcome deficiencies. That was a huge thing for me, man, because I was able to start seeing myself through the paradigm of people that had been multiple years and like multiple income brackets above me. And so I started seeing myself like little by little, seeing myself differently. One thing that I did learn with door-to-door sales was about just being mentally tough. So I did pull some of those skills over and I started writing on my bathroom mirror in the morning about what I wanted to do in terms of hitting my monthly quota. First thing I saw in the morning was my monthly quota on the bathroom mirror. It was a process of just kind of like brainwashing myself to adapt to the environment. And that little by little started going, going, going. The thing that really actually pushed me over the top was like the brilliance of Trez, the way he leveraged the other members uh, members of the team to push me to the next level. And in particular, man, it was one kid on our team named um, Tony Parker, man. This kid was just like a stud on the phone. He was just confident, able to just sort of adapt to whatever, whoever he was talking to. He had a certain confidence, man, that just seemed like it came from a source I, I didn't know how to access. Parker started picking at me, man. (laughs) <laughs> come in, like, come in, like, hey, Dorsey, you like to call me, call me Dorsey. Hey, Dorsey, you going to sell something today? Hey, Dorsey. I was sitting over there fuming, man, in my in my cubicle, man, thinking like seeing red, like you going to sell something today, sell something. I'm like, man, I'm not, look, man, you're about to just talk to me like I'm a sucker. You know what I'm saying? So, there you go. Like, look, man, I'm not about to be that guy. So like that. 
actually whatever discomfort I had of being on the phone, man, mm-hmm. that just evaporated with that, man. Because I was getting clowned, man. <laughs> 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 so all that knowledge I already had is sort of just that was activated. But from there, man, I was just I was just determined, man, to to excel. And at that point, man, that was the catalyst. What I didn't know at the time was that Prez got in his ear on the low behind my back. (laughs) I'm like, this dude instigated that whole scenario. At that point, he was watching me and knew me. And that was the brilliance of Prez, man, just being able to like, kind of like leverage resources to kind of get people to do what they need to do. You know what I'm saying? And so, I mean, that really, man, that was... That was hilarious looking back on it. Parker, that's a solid guy, man. But at the time, <laughs> I'm going to take him out, man. Amanda Boer, she had a question for you. A lot of people have questions for Jules. She says, hey, Jules, did you buy that Hyde Park table yet from uh, Julius Dorsey? <laughs> you know what, man? Not yet. I'm still waiting on Prez's black card. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the honest answer. I'm still waiting on that, on that black card. On the pod, we talked with Julius. I said I was going to buy that Hyde Park table because it's dope. Uh, a lot of his furniture is dope. All of it. So if you get a chance, double check that. Double check him out. Give him some support. Give him some love. But I'm definitely going to give him love as soon as prayers give me love with that black card and I'm there. <laughs> I should have never pulled that card out in front of this dude. He's always talking about that card. <laughs> and then oh. if not, I probably have to use my, uh, I, I got a little light blue card. I probably have to use that one instead there. Okay, there you go. Shit, you got a little heat over there too, so you all good. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely show that man some love because he got some good stuff on there, man. And, and audience, if you missed that episode, Chicago Fire Furniture Studio is the company. Julius Dorsey was on the show last week. Mm-hmm. Smart brother, dope concept. Definitely check him out. Another thing about Biden, and, it's, and it kind of sums up the episode that we're going to do today, audience, is he mentioned that his administration wasn't likely to end, obviously, racial injustice because this is stuff that's been going on for decades, if not centuries, right? But he promised that while he's in office, that the federal government will take every action possible to address these problems. So at least he's actually realizing, hey, there's inequities out here, and I'm going to basically look for ways that I can basically find solutions to these problems. Mm-hmm. So systemic racism Racial equity, these are things that basically people have been asking for, God, and protesting for, and speaking out for, Um, for so many years, right? Yeah, for so many, right, (laughs) right. And so it seems like with this administration, they're doing a lot of things to make sure that America can kind of get back on some sort of a somewhat level playing field. So they're going to be establishing some recent executive orders from Biden. They're going to be addressing and establishing a police oversight commission. They're going to be restoring some Obama-era policies that prohibit the sale of military equipment to local police departments. They're also, and this is going to tie into the episode that we're doing today, they're going to eliminate the Department of Justice's use of private prisons. And then they're rolling back the Trump-era policies prohibiting racial sensitivity training which I think is another thing that Jules and I have talked about on this podcast of how can you police or how can you interact with a world that you don't understand, right? True. True. So I think it's very vital to make sure that these individuals that are out here patrolling, they know the people, you know? And, and And I've talked about this on the podcast of when I grew up, my grandmother knew who the officers were, whether they were white, black, or whatever. 
they would have conversations with the law enforcement. And, and that relationship is so frayed right now that I think some of these policies that we're seeing will go a long way to try to help at least bridge that gap a little bit. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Yeah, I hope, man. You know, Obama in 2016 said that to talk about the private prison, you know, it's more of a safety and security problems for those, that, you know, ran by the government. And you want to move to phase those out. But of course, your boy, your boy Trump, you know, reversed that decision. Yep. So sure now, did. yeah, so now, Biden is is bringing it back and he signed that executive order. You know, those prison industrial complexes, you know, they describe for expansion of the U.S. inmate population to political influences of private yep. prisons. You know, these companies and businesses, they supply the goods to these, these prisons for profit. It's all about money. All about money. And they need people to people in there. It's and, a business. And, that, and that's why they're filling those things up as fast as they mm-hmm. can. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, Jules, I mean, these things, this is a billion dollar industry right. with, with these type of facilities. Mm-hmm. And they're paid for with taxpayer money. So once again. <laughs> right. And one of the things, too, that we've actually seen from a lot of these type of facilities are they have dehumanizing conditions for the inmates. And then also, too, they kind of treat the people that are being detained. It's like almost kind of like cheap slave labor for them. And mm-hmm. under Trump. We saw that the use of these private prisons went through the roof because he used them for like immigration uh, detention centers and where they were kind of locking up the undocumented immigrants. And a lot of those people, we we saw the videos how those people were treated so horribly and forced to be in some of those places. So, man, to Jules' point, this is all big business for these individuals. And so I like that this executive order is basically telling these individuals you cannot renew your federal contracts with these private prisons. So I really, really appreciate that. And it's in stark contrast, because, Jules, you remember that I kind of called out Biden earlier in the season because, remember, he was one of those people that helped the Senate win the quote-unquote war on crime. So right. now it seems like a lot of the stuff that Biden is doing, he's realizing maybe some of the stuff that I put into action at that time was a little too punitive, especially for people of color. And so it seems like now what he's trying to do is he's trying to kind of lighten up some of those things that he kind of helped uh, put into to law. Mm-hmm. I told you, man, I'm, I'm tapped out, dude. I'm getting that snowblower. I'm getting it, and I am getting it. So you I going can't. snowblower, not snowthrower. Uh, I got you. No, I'm going snowblower. I, I can't wait till I take my ass up in that store. Said, <laughs> Give me the biggest, baddest uh, snowblower you got. <laughs> That's how I'm going to say it, too. <laughs> Immediately. On our brother Eugene Goodman, man, uh, I yes, saw sir. that he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal uh, yesterday for his actions that took place on January 6th. Man, what'd you think about that, brother, bro? Man, congratulations. You talking about ballsy? Shit, right? Man. See, we he had us all fooled because we thought he was being chased by those rioters. Fooled everybody. He was leading them away from Congress people that was up in that office. Big shout out, big kudos. Definitely deserved it. Because what he did right there, he risked his life. And mm-hmm. saving, you know, the people who write the laws and stuff for us. I mean, what else can you do for this brother? I think he got a he got a promotion too. He did get a promotion. He yep. got a promotion, get the medal. He deserved he, it because people died there. Because when you look at the video, you see him push one guy. Yeah, he did. Kind of get him to keep focus on him. Yep, yep. Because he saw where he was going. He was like, nope. <laughs> right, right. Dude, you know how you have to be to face that. And to say, you know what, what I'm going to do is something bigger than, 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 my, than my own life. I know he was sitting up there thinking, you know what, my life is in jeopardy here. But Hell he said, yeah. he's looking at the bigger picture. He, look, he looked at himself, look, you know, I'm going to sacrifice myself and I'm going to just do this. 
and just pray to God that you don't know say nothing goes too far south. Because sometimes you get in them situations where there's stuff going on, but to protect life and, and the preservation of life is first. It's in creed, it's in doctrine on law enforcement or, or anybody, just in, in people in general. You don't want to see people getting hurt and stuff. And sometimes people in, intervene. And what he did was amazing. It really was. And there's no type of training, like you were saying, Mm-mm. that can prepare you for a situation like that, man. Let's be honest. It's, it's scary. People, just put yourself in that man's shoes. These people coming up in there angry. They're a mob. Terrence Collins, he wanted to know, since he, he realizes that we go back a little bit, he said, what is one thing about the other person that stands out to you? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's an easy question for me. That's an easy answer. As far as with prayers, my man, prayers, it's just your, your determination, man, that drive. Man, that drive is just, you have the mamba mentality, you know? And that's what everything you do. Everything you do, you put your, your best foot forward, and you want to be the best at, at what you do, in which that discipline, it's, it's tight, man. You look up to that, and that's why I look up to you with that. That's why I got you, you know, want to give you that heat, man, because that's what I look at you as, man, this this, this driven person who just headstrong and just know what he wanted, and he cared for people and just want the best for people and, and for his friends and family and stuff. That's what I look at, man, and, and doing things for people out there just don't even know because it's in your heart, too. Man, that's... Man, I, I got that question. I was like, oh, man, oh, that's the easy one for me. <laughs> <laughs> man, that, that's humbling to even hear you say that. I really appreciate that, man. Uh, for me, when I think of my, my man Jules, I'm going to say a couple things. This is a guy that I've known since I was 14. And the time that I've known him, I've never known this man to hold a grudge towards anyone. Think about that for a second. <laughs> I've known this man for over... What, 27 years now at this point? Man, man. I'm going to tell you one thing. Nobody can say that about press. (laughs) 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 Mm. (laughs) Settle down there, Jules. (laughs) But, oh, man. But I look back at a lot of moments over the years. I mean, even between me and Jules, I mean, we've had difficult conversations and moments. I mean, we played sports together, right? So there's always that spirited Mm -hmm. trash talk and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But sometimes some people in Jules, you know uh, who I'm talking about. Sometimes we'd be out there playing football and some people didn't know how to rein that stuff in. But I would say for you, no matter what those difficult conversations were and moments, you never let that affect our relationship and the brotherhood. And that's one thing that I say about you. Man, 100%, like, dude, something that I definitely appreciate about you. But another thing, he ain't about no negativity. That's one of the things where you could just sit and talk to a guy and it's no bullshit. You know, good-ass heart. And he's as laid back as they come. But I'll tell you one thing, don't take his laid-back nature for weakness. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's about that life and he can yeah. throw hands. He can throw hands. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a different side, yeah. Yeah, that's a different side. Now I'm gonna say I'm gonna say this though, but Terrence, I got one negative about Jules. My only Uh issue with this man was his random ass Deion Sanders fandom when we were growing up. I never (laughs) understood that shit. 
Dude, he's the greatest, the greatest football player ever, man. Dude, you stop it right now. I'm muting your mic. Stop it. <laughs> we talked about this in the past on the show about the HBCUs and the, the importance mm-hmm. of individuals looking at those schools, supporting those schools, and representing those schools. So, Tim, to answer your question, I thought this was phenomenal for someone with Dion's pedigree, all the stuff that, that Jules mentioned. When you got a guy like that, with that background, a Hall of Fame NFL football player, mm-hmm. that he's going to come to an HBCU school like this. He's put this school back on the map. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the school that Walter Payton played at, and it was floundering. By Dion coming here, they said that this school valuated went up by millions just with the promotional value of having this guy wearing Jackson State gear, right? You also got to think about the fact that Dion has an endorsement deal with Under Armour. So that's bringing money into this program. The kids that are going to play on this team now are going to get more exposure. So it's going to help them to change their lives, maybe even get a chance to play at the NFL or something, right? This Mm -hmm. was a hell of a move, bro. Hell of a move. Oh, man, I like it. And wait to see what happens for the season, you know? Yeah, because they're already 1-0, like you mentioned. It seems like he's going to bring a little nice little culture to them because he he kind of set the tone in the, in the beginning when he first got hired. He's basically said that if people were committed, then he said, this ain't the place for you to come and play. As he said, there ain't going to be no part of anybody in this program that's not committed because he said, you're mm. going to stick out like a donkey at a dog show. <laughs> <laughs> the heck. You know, and that's and that's big. And you know, who else can say that? But yeah, I mean, two times. I mean, he played baseball and football at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. so his work ethic is roof. And he just wants you to come in and bring your A game every day. I mean, that's what you're there for, really. So, Perez, I'm with you, man. I, I think this is phenomenal. Just let's also just quickly talk about the fact of when he got hired, he talked about the playing field that those players had to play on was horrible. And he said it was unacceptable. Okay. So right there. I looked at a guy like Dion and said, I'm going to take this challenge because this is going to be easy. I want our audience to realize him coaching football at an HBCU school, he's going to face a lot of challenges and hurdles, but it's something that he seems like he's ready to take on. It's going to open a lot of doors up, not only for the students, but the players and the university as a whole. And I think that that's the bigger piece of the puzzle here for me is the fact that mm-hmm. when you see somebody like Dion Sanders doing this, what's going to stop other prominent people from going to an HBCU and trying to build something. And I think that that's going to be really important because True. we always talk about on the show, fuck a seat at the table, create your own table, go build your own table. And I really like the fact that Dion said, let's do that here at Jackson State. They're going to build their own table. For our audience, if you guys haven't seen it, spoiler alert, because I'm getting ready to tell you some shit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> the movie is it, it, through the eyes and the views point of Bill O'Neill. So if you guys don't know who Bill O'Neill is, he basically was an informant. He basically got busted for stealing cars and shit. And to save his own ass, he partnered up with the FBI and he helped them to infiltrate the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. Right? So the thing that I liked about the movie is the thing that Jules brought up earlier was the performance of Daniel, who portrayed Fred Hampton. However, I think that this movie would have been better if it would have been from the viewpoint of Fred Hampton as opposed to a viewpoint of the informant. Mm, gotcha. Because when I watched it from the viewpoint of the informant, Jules, I just was just distracted from the fact of this fucking person is helping 
the FBI and law enforcement take out one of their own. And that's the part that, that bothered me because, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, the work that the Panthers were doing in the community, I mean, it was second to none, right? But I also thought that they could have done a better job of painting the picture of the, of the situation that was going on in Chicago at the time. Jules and I talk about this all the time with this podcast about the racial disparities in the city of Chicago. Well, audience, think back to the 60s during this time where Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party were prominent, and you had Mayor Daley as the mayor. All the film had Fred mentioned briefly was that Chicago is the most segregated city in America. Remember that part in the film that when Fred Hampton said mm -hmm. that? But that's right. all that's all they touched on. And I thought that that was a missed opportunity because mm -hmm. I think what they should have done is they should have taken more time and paint the picture of some of the racial inequalities that were going on in the city of Chicago. So for you, man, Cos, man, I want to just learn a little bit more about your background and some of your early days, man, because you, you came up in, in, in Y, right? Yep. I grew up in the Lower East Side of New York City. So my mom immigrated from the Dominican Republic, pregnant with me. And um, we came to, to this neighborhood. Back then, it was in the 80s. It was just a very drug-infested neighborhood. I remember seeing heroin lines going down the block. You know, it was just, it was crazy. It was something that, you know, look, and thinking about it and, and, and having that in my mind now and then traveling all around the world and seeing other places is like, it was a movie. You know, every day was a movie. Every day was like a, a something happened, you know, and people were gossiping about it or, you know what I mean? And so that's what I grew up, you know, seeing. And I, I thought that was normal, you know, and so I started re-expanding myself out of the community and out of like the four quarters that I was uh, living in. Yeah, I mean, I, I got involved with drugs at a very early age. My cousins were on the corner slinging and, and that's something that I, I alluded to, you know, as a kid, my mom. Uh, didn't have much. And yeah, I would ask her for stuff and she would tell me like she couldn't afford it. And that, that would just frustrate me. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to get what I asked for or, you know, get it in any means necessary. So I saw my cousins had it, you know, they, they were, you know, had the Jordans and all the stuff and the jewels and, and that's what I wanted to follow. And so I started hanging out in the corner with them and, and they became my, you know, I guess, my advisors, my mentors, you know, people that, that I, uh, that I looked up to as role models, you know, and, 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 and that's who I became, you know, I started dealing drugs at 13. I started smoking at 11, um, just hanging out with them. And then 14, I'm selling Coke and crack on the corner. And then eventually it started, you know, growing and, and I expanded it to a crazy business. And, and at 19, I was, um, running one of the largest drug delivery services in New York city. Cause I, came up with an idea and I ran with it. You know, I started selling to all the, all the gentrifiers in the neighborhood back then. And the neighborhood started changing in the like early two thousands, right after the, the, the towers dropped the whole New York change. Right. Um, that's when I blew up and started making, yeah, by the age of 19, I was making over $2 million a year. I think I already had the moment while I was inside, you know, well, my mentality was, you know, am I going to wake up and be hungry? No, I'm, I'm going to, if I need food, I'm going to go to a soup kitchen that's giving out food. You know, I'm going to mm -hmm. go, uh, I was, I was lining up to get uh, free groceries, you know what I mean? Um, Cause it was programs out here or whatever, you know, am I going to wake up on the floor when I go home? Nah, I'm going to be in a homeless shelter. I'm going to be in my mom's couch. And you know, I, I knew I was going to be 
hard situations. Um, but the thing I had in my mind was just like, I'm going to keep continuing living, you know, no matter what, you know, God is going to provide me food, is going to provide me shelter, is going to provide me clothes. And that's the mentality that I had. And so I knew that I, I nothing was going to bring me back no matter what. But I was motivated. And I think the first thing that really uh, blocked me a little bit, you know, I wouldn't even say blocked me because I got through it, you know, but it was that I went out to the park, you know, I went back to the same neighborhood that I grew up in. And so the dudes are still on my block hustling. There's, you know, there's people still out there, you know, doing that thing. And the park is across the street. And I started doing the workouts out there. And so I went out to the park and and I started going up to dudes that I knew from back in the day in the street. And uh, and they were looking at me like I was crazy. You know, I was telling them, yo, I'm going to start this prison style boot camp. They were like, yo, you bugging. This shit ain't going to work. Who wants to work out with an ex-con? They were, I, was, I just knew it was going to work out. I was like, yo, it's going to pop. You're going to see. You're going to see. And then, uh, you know, after a couple of years of, of, you know, making things happen, I've had people, you know, off the corner tell me, like, yo, I need a job, bro. Yo, I just came home, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm like, I told you there was going to pop. <laughs> I got on board in the beginning. Yep. But, um, yeah, I always, uh, you know, I went up to like everybody, everybody that I knew from the neighborhood, you know, to, you know, get them out there working out with me. Um and, and most people didn't, you know, and some people were like making fun of me. Uh, but I think that was like a deterrent, you know, because it's embarrassing to do this on your own. You know, you, you look like you're crazy. You know, I went from making millions of dollars, driving Beamers, Benzes, all this crazy bullshit, you know, and now I'm in the park, you know, handing out postcards, you know, trying to get people to work out with me. So I think that was the, the mental blockage, you know, for yep. like, as soon as I came mm-hmm. home. I wanted to get into something that a few of our listeners has sent over to us because they wanted us to discuss it on the show. It was the George Floyd $27 million settlement that his family received from the city of Minneapolis. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this before you know I expound on it, but I got a lot to say about this subject because when I saw it, a lot of this stuff just really made me kind of upset. I'm just going to be honest. So, But I wanted to get your thoughts on this whole situation because you know how I felt about this whole George Floyd situation since the summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I saw this, it just kind of made me mad a little bit. But what were your thoughts, man? You know, no amount of money can ever address the pain and trauma that family goes through when they, they lose a loved one. It's hard. And what do you do? $27 million, that is a lot, a lot of money. But it doesn't replace George. Even though his family is set, his daughter is secure and set and stuff, they're still loved when it's gone. It's hard to address this. I don't even know how do you address it. It's, it should never happen. That's my whole thing. Brothers and sisters out there in law enforcement, listen. They teach you in the academy. What, them, them cuffs go on, game over. When it's on, game over. So if you see an officer that's out there just doing extra, man, just stop this brother or sister, whoever the case may be. Just stop them until, you know, and handle the situation because something like that, what we seen last year with George Floyd and some other cases should never happen. I don't want to repeat of last year. This is real sensitive press because people are angry and they just, and people don't care and they just, they just releasing, expressing how they feel and not caring. So I know their, their government politicians in, in Minneapolis are trying, whatever they're trying to do to try to keep the peace and keep the calm and try to work with the family and the public and stuff. But 27 million. Okay, the family is set, but their loved one's still gone. The thing is, we need to to address 
what happened should never happen. It should never happen again. That was the point where I stand on this whole situation. And I've always been here. And I talked about in season one of the show, Jules, how there is a need for police reform in this in this country. Mm-hmm. You and I have talked about this on the side, whereas I understand for some people, the terminology of defund police is a little too strong for people. But there is something that needs to, to go on in this country, because when taxpayers are now on the hook for a twenty seven million dollar settlement, right. that pisses me off because they didn't do this. Derek Chauvin was the one that killed George Floyd. Right. He should be personally responsible. His police union should be personally responsible. Taxpayers should not be on the hook for these type of situations. That $27 million should have been going to the school system there in Minneapolis. It should be going to their infrastructure. It should be going to helping and rebuild the inner city. Mm -hmm. That's why when this came over to me, Jules, I looked at it and I said, so Jules' point, that $27 million ain't going to bring George Floyd back. His daughter's not going to have her father anymore. This is blood money. It's just a small world and just definitely appreciative of, you know, being able to be connected with someone that's doing really good work here in the South Chicago South Side. It's such a blessing. I'm so grateful that they are able to, you know, relay the message. We have to keep it in our community, right? We have to be able to to share what we can. And definitely with something like what we're serving, I love to be able to offer a healthy alternative for people. So I'm just grateful. Love them both. Why you mentioned that, that you're looking to serve like that healthy alternative. What kind of led you down that path of wanting to do that? What what, what was the big moment for you to say, hey, this is going to be the business model that I want to kind of go down? Sure. Well, thank you for that question. Actually, I was taking care of my own self. And, you know, when you take care of yourself, others kind of take notice. And um, at the time I was working a very stressful job at that time. And um, just to keep my own health up, I was having, you know, I was like, you know what? I'm really busy. I haven't been able to eat as good as I as I could. I was in grad school and working a full time job. And I said, you know what? The best way I can get my nutrients in is going to be through juice. So every morning I would make this really ugly looking juice. It was black. <laughs> it had every single last thing you could think about in there. <laughs> and um, and my coworkers, shortly but surely, started to catch up. Like, you know, what is that ugly thing you bring into work every day? I'm like, hey, this keeps me going. It actually tastes good. Um, you know, I feel good. And it's the only reason that I'm able to do all I'm doing and kept my energy up. And so they started trying it. And they were like, actually... This is good. And they started feeling good. And they were telling me how they didn't want to go without it. So they were making it was just kind of making them make better decisions with what they were eating. And they started asking for me to bring it every day. It started off voluntary. You know, I was just like, I'm just going to bring it. I make it. It doesn't matter. And and the list just kept growing. So I was like, all right, well, you know, at this point, we probably need to consider something. And so they had a donation box and they gave me what they thought, you know, it should be worth for them. And I say, you know what, this is probably something that's that could be a business. So really, it was the educational piece, being able to inspire other people to make better decisions. That really was my aha moment. And then just naturally, as God's will, I learned about my own autoimmune issues. And that's what kind of reconnected me to the goal, because, you know, we as entrepreneurs, you have your times or you have your ups and downs and you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to take all this on. And one of the reconnectors that kind of just really led it home for me was when I knew that I needed it for myself wow. and okay. how it was making me feel and, and making me better. So I myself have juice every day and I try to keep, you know, I have this community that's with me to keep, to reinforce me as well. So it's actually 
more than I'm helping them than they know they also are helping me. I'm just grateful to be where I am. Juice is super easy. You drink it and you go. I mean, that's super easy way to start to help your children. It tastes good. It's not, I have a lot of babies that I'm surprised. I'm like, wow, you know, it didn't take much to, they just want something that's yummy. They don't really, you know, they're not really looking into all of the rest of it. I think that's a helpful way. I think smoothies are a helpful way because that's fun. They can make it themselves. Sometimes when you make it yourself, you don't think it's as bad as when someone else makes it. So encourage children to make their own smoothies, encourage them to make their own salads, encourage them to do it themselves so that they can have it themselves and they can notice the different ways that things taste so that they can start to build their own palace in a better way. Sometimes just because, you know, we just feel and then also balancing their plates. Like I know that sometimes we'll just say, okay, I'm just going to give you a hamburger and fries. Well, (laughs) let's just think about colors when we're feeding anybody, anything colors. Is that a colorful plate? You know, you're just seeing browns and browns, right? So where are your greens? Where are your yellows? Where where are your colors at? And you Mm. can really only find that through naturally through fruits and vegetables. So colors is a great way. You know, I see people that sometimes make their children's foods fun. They cut it up in shapes. You you have to do whatever you got to do. Be creative. I know that, you know, not a lot of us have that time and luxury because we're trying to work super hard and, you know, the the world isn't catering to us, unfortunately, but right. we can do something. And a minimal is, some, is a smoothie. A minimal is a smoothie. A minimal is not purchasing stuff, stuff such as um, chips and, and fruit snacks. Right. Don't even purchase it. If, I mean, if they get it, they can get it outside the house, but don't have it in the house. Maybe they have it once a week now because they can't find it at home. You have to find your way. And the biggest thing probably is just you yourself as a parent being better. You know, I hear sometimes some of my parents are like, oh, I'm going on a cleanse, but I still got to cook for my baby. So I'm, I'm going to do it. And they'll tell me what they fix. And I'm like, well, they don't have to eat that because, you know, you you don't want to go back to eating that. They don't have to eat that. They can have what you have, too. So you like you going on the cleanse, but you fry some chicken up for the baby with a bunch of other stuff. Right. I'm like, well, we got options. We got options. Uh, It's okay. They don't have to eat that. They can have what you have. (laughs) All right. Let's get into some of these mailbag questions, man. So we had some good ones this week. And the first one, Jules, I'm kicking this over to you first because that's what I do. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts on coming to America too? Our brother Pierce Smith wanted to know. I'm glad it was on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> uh, you know, damn. All right, let me let me control myself. Okay. Um. <clears throat> well, you know what, Press? I think. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a decent movie. I was a little surprised when Eddie said that it took him four years to complete the script because uh, I was like... I couldn't see okay. four years of work in that damn script. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. So I was like, well, okay. All right. So, you know, of course, it's 30 years after the, orig- the original was oh, Amazing, right? Dude, you had an all-star lineup. That thing there. I know everybody saw that thing. So, yeah, hey, four stars. Come to America too. What I liked about it was all the uh, old characters was on it. 
it was good seeing John Amos and Jer- a, um, James Earl Jones, yep. stuff like that. Man, that what right there was was the reason why I like watching the um, the movie. Yeah, Eddie and Arsino, they was doing their thing again, and and then he has some newcomers, Leslie Jones and, and Tracy Morgan and stuff. I thought the movie was good. I thought it was decent praise. I, I don't know what to say, man. I thought it was decent. Well, I'm gonna say this: Jules is always forever the gentleman on the show because. <laughs> uh, I'm getting ready to trash this movie. Oh, so, damn. Jules, all I'm going to say is this, man. The okay. original, like you said, funny as hell. The mm-hmm. second one, they could have kept this shit, bro. One thing that I just want to bring up to the audience, <laughs> and I just want you guys to think about this. So is this movie, was it supposed to be 30 years later? So 30 years in the future? Because that was the part I couldn't understand. Because my thing was, if this was 30 years later, why were those still those three dudes in the barbershop still old men? They should have been dead. <laughs> It happened, what, this happened past Tuesday, and he went to massage parlors. Mm-hmm. A dude went to massage parlors. He killed four people in one massage parlor, drove, what, half an hour and killed four more people in two different ones in Atlanta. Yeah, just right went, outside. Then went across the street to another right. one and killed yeah. another person. Right? <laughs> I mean, like, brother, man, what? <laughs> so get this dude by the help with, uh, there's his family, actually. His family actually called in to kind of tell him where he was at and stuff like that. The authorities went, grabbed him. Okay. Talk about motives. Talk about motives. He's talking about, well, hey, listen, he has an addiction. According to what he said, he has an addiction, and he's trying to fight off that addiction by killing these people. I don't know what the hell that got to do with anything, but all right, all this is just BS. He's trying to please Sandy. It's not going to work because, listen here, if you have 21 years old, you're talking about you have an addiction, and your addiction is massage parlors because what? I mean, you need to talk to Robert Crabb because I I ain't never been to Massage Parlor. I don't know what the hell they're doing there. They're talking about happy endings and this and that. All that's all that's play play. So dude, where, where you going off, you know what I'm saying, killing these folks, innocent people. Right. And it's working. What that got to do with your addiction? It's got nothing to do with the addiction, it, man. It, it, right. Mm-hmm. So, bro, you were just on some reckless stuff, just some dumb stuff. I don't know what the case. I know he just not, it just wasn't no bad day like that one chief said. Bro. Don't even get me started on that. I'm sitting up here like this I know man. You're gonna go in. I know you're going to go in, You bro. already know. You already know. That man said he had a really bad day. I'm sitting up here like, bro, I've had some really bad days, especially this week, Jules. I ain't going to shoot up in no damn massage right. parlors. Fuck right, out of here. All, right. We all had bad days. I, what the? I mean, <laughs> prayers. You, you know what a bad day is? You get into it at your kid's soccer practice. You get into it at a game with your with the coach or something. That's having a bad day. Right. Well, he did. Let's call it what it is. Like Jules said, that's domestic terrorism, bro. Also, another point that I want to make. Law enforcement, they had to use the little pit maneuver to get him to stop his car, right? And they got him, right? Took him into custody. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say this. The man did mention that, hey, he had an addiction. And he did this because he was trying to, to fight off those addictions. Well, bro, uh-huh. if you got an addiction and you got some sort of issue with these things, just stay the fuck away from them. Like, what are you doing? Also, can we talk about the aspect of things that law enforcement was able to apprehend this guy after he killed eight people and not a scratch was on him? And Jules, you know I've talked about this a ton on this show, but we continue to see it in history where we have people of color that are in situations where it's like, oh, does he have a gun? Or he's walking towards us and we light him up. How is it that this guy was brought in to custody, no issues, and he killed eight people? And we have individuals that are sitting in their car, and they get out the car, and it's a certain way that they get out the car, and they get lit up. See, that's the thing, man. People, they ain't ready for these type of conversations that we have on this show, man, because you all need to understand what's going on here. 
there is a double standard that happens with these crimes. And this was a hate crime. I don't care how anybody else looks at this. He's going to sit here and try to position it and say that he had an addiction. Well, bro, if you got an addiction, then go seek some help for it. There's places out there that can help you. Yeah. When we were coming up in high school, and Jules talks about how he has family that, that lived in Cabrera Green. This was a story, and Jules, you never even knew this about me, man. This story, though, was our senior year of high school. And it stuck with me so much that when we were in high school, I wrote letters and I reached out to the family. And this was the girl that was known as Girl X. She was a nine-year-old kid that was raped and choked, doused and forced to drink roach repellent. Right, right. And she was left to die in the stairwell of these projects, Cabrera Ring projects. Now, I remember that. I remember that. Yep. Now, she, just like these other 51 women and from this episode, was pretty much disposed of like trash. But the girl survived. She was left blinded, brain damaged, and she was partially paralyzed. During that time, she was known to the world as Girl X. But I want to let the world know her name is Shatoya Curry, and she currently lives in an assist- assisted living facility. At that time, I was 17, writing letters, whatever, not expecting anything back. But I actually got a letter back from the family when I was in college, right? This story to me was something that I held on to for a very long time because that's a nine-year-old kid. That is a, a nine-year-old who sh- her life, somebody should have been protecting her. No one should be sitting here thinking about doing that type of unspeakable act to anybody, but let alone a nine-year-old kid. Her case, justice was actually served because her perpetrator received an 120-year uh, sentence in jail. But Jules and our audience, when you think of the story of Girl X that I just told, do you think that her life is ever going to be the same? No. And that's the thing that I want people to think about when we have these situations, that we have to do better. We have to protect people. If you see something that looks out of line or looks a little bit suspicious or suspect, step up. Do something. We got we to gotta do more. We got to do better. Without further ado, audience, we got Raymond Bats on the show with us today. Ray, talk to him. What's going on, people? Welcome to Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, hosted by the awesome and amazing Prez and Jules. Thank you so much, Prez, for that uh, introduction that you gave me, brother. Thank you. And I meant that, man, because that was real shit, man. When you when you did that for us, that that helped us to kind of get on the on the uh, radar in Chicago, you know, with your audience there on your show. And we really mm-hmm. appreciated that, man. Thank you so much. Looking at some of the moves that you've been making over the course of the years, and that's why we wanted to have you on this show today, man, because you've been doing a lot in the community. You've been doing a lot of things individually. What we do on this show, educate and empower, you know, our people and other people too, right? And so we felt like, man, you would be a voice that our audience would definitely resonate with, man. So thanks for jumping on with us today. Hey, it is Thank my pleasure, ready. brother. Man, so what you been up to, man? What's what's new with you? Man, you know, like, uh, of course, um, a lot of people been suffering during the whole pandemic and everything. I've been one of the people that's been coming up during it because, like, uh, the thing is, the pandemic, at the very beginning, I told a, a business associate of mine, I said, this is the era of small business. And I had no idea what I was saying at that time. Man, so many grant opportunities, opportunities for growth of business have opened up. I've taken advantage of a lot of it, man. And it's definitely, definitely helped me financially and everything, you know? 
And I mean, that's a good point that you bring up because I think this is the time for the small business because everybody now is on the whole campaign of support small business, right? Because we saw uh, so many small businesses that were affected last year during the pandemic. Yep. I recently partnered with an organization called All Chicago. Okay. The way I originally got in touch with them, last year, my former tenant that stayed in my first floor, he had got behind in his rent. Mm. I submitted an application for rental assistance for him. And he was able to get the rental assistance. All Chicago paid the rental assistance out. They paid all his back rent. So I said, okay, you got a clean slate now, brother. So he ended up moving out. All Chicago got back in touch with me through my nonprofit. And they said, you know, we'd like to partner with your nonprofit. How many units do you have? I said, well, I only have one available right now. However, I have an entire network of real estate professionals that I love to plug you with. So what all Chicago did was, uh, first off, what I did downstairs, I went downstairs, I had a paint job done, which I hired some of my brothers uh, that I grew up with in the community, like put some money in their pocket. They went ahead, they did an amazing job down there. I changed the shower head, changed the toilet seat, looked like a whole new apartment. Wow. Okay, Ray. Okay, and, Ray. <laughs> and before I was charging eleven hundred a month, I said, you know, I'm charging twelve fifty now. That's and right. I That's tried right. the program, and they said, well, you know what? That's no problem because we'll pay you. We'll pay that rent as long as it's under the top market value, and the top market value in this area for a three bedroom was fifteen hundred. I said, well, twelve fifty. They pay their own lights and gas. Water is included. Alarm system is included. There's also got the alarm and camera company. So I, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, I got cameras all over this building, bro. <laughs> I got cameras <laughs> on, on the um, defensive flip, too. <laughs> as, as you should, brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you ain't kidding. You ain't kidding. And that give them, that give, hey, that give your tenants a little peace of mind, too. Yeah, it definitely do. And I, I actually got a tenant that's uh, going through the whole uh, background check right now that came through the program. But this is a beautiful thing about that program. They pay you holding fees in the amount of each month rent until they find a tenant. Wow. Okay. They've been paying me since January. Wow. Oh, nice. So you said the name of that program was All Chicago? Yep, it's called All Chicago. I was actually just on a um, a Zoom call with them yesterday. Okay. So now I'm a direct referral source for All Chicago because, like, basically anyone that wants to plug into the program, I put them into the spreadsheet, they contact them, and now they know all these people come through me because I already referred about seven people over to them, like leasing agents, um, property owners, all, all types of people. I've, I referred quite a few people over. And they say, you know, you, you're serious. So they put me on that call. I'm, I'm listening to these guys. Yeah, we own 40 units. And they, I, well, I got one unit. I'm nowhere near where y'all at, but I have a <laughs> network. <laughs> In Evanston, I saw where their city council passed a measure where they're going to be bringing a form of reparations to Black citizens in Evanston. Did you see that? And okay. what were some of your thoughts about that? Because I got tons. <laughs> uh, hey, when I first when I first heard, it, I said, "Really?" <laughs> I was like, "Okay." And then it was talking about how they take some of the profit from the cannabis sales and they put a percentage, and they're gonna start giving black residents who's who's qualified reparation. I was like, "Okay, cool." And and, and so it was like, "Okay, so what it's 
what are we talking about? Are we talking about money or whatever the case may be. And then it was like, okay, for the people who was disenfranchised for getting homes. And that was like, okay, so they're able to get to loans and other things. I said, okay, well, that's cool. I thought it was, I thought it was the start. Yeah. So when, when I looked at it, Jules, I thought, okay, it's cute. Mm-hmm. But, but then I like, I, I kind of dug into it a little bit more. And so okay. when I saw it, I said, okay, they approved $400,000 in payments that's going to go to these Black families. And like you mentioned, these are people that were disenfranchised, right? right? But for our listeners, details matter. So you have to look at this situation and say, okay, these funds can only be used by eligible people on home-related expenses. So home repairs, down payments, things of that nature, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this isn't really a reparations program on its surface. I still say with the initial investment of only being $400,000, you're dividing that $400,000 up against how many people? That's one of the problems that I have with it. Also, if anybody wants to look up more details on it, Google it, because this only goes back to 1919. So I believe it's from 1919 to 1969 are the years. But this thing needs to go back a little bit further than that, because our condition didn't just start in 1919. I mean, I'm just going to just say that part. It's not cash fund based. These funds are being paid directly to mortgage institutions. But this approach does not lock out a majority of people that were affected by housing discrimination. The stuff that we talked about in this show with redlining. Right. Think about people that face an eviction. They don't qualify for a mortgage. So where's the where's the incentive for them? Like another thing to think about. This is a start, but they need to look at this thing. And if they're going to be the front runner, meaning Evanston, then do this right. Where are the programs that stop people from accruing late fees that mess up their credit? Where are the programs that are going to help people with those dings that go in their credit report? Because if you know, as you know, in this country, if you don't have credit, you got nothing. True. And it's this bad credit and these penalties are what continue to keep that poverty cycle in this country going, and especially in our inner cities. Before I go into this, I was going to say for anybody, because I know for me, I struggled with just this whole situation when it happened last summer, and this trial okay. still kind of brings back some of those painful thoughts and memories. And I will say, I refuse to watch that video anymore. And anybody out there, if you feel like that thing triggers you, don't feel the need that you have to watch. No, there's nothing, yeah, nothing, it nothing wrong with not watching that. Manage your trauma if you need to. Because there's going to be a lot of things that's going to happen in the course of this trial that's going to make you shake your head. Because the one thing I'm going to say, Jules, and I'm going to kick this over to you because I want to get your thoughts on it. But that defense attorney, I know Mm -hmm. that he's got a job to do, right? But that man tried immediately to divert the attention away from what exactly actually happened in that video. He tried to tell people a couple things that really were problematic to me. The first. He tried to say that this cop, Shalvin, and his team had a threat that was growing in front of them. And they caught that threat to bystanders that were basically begging him to get off of Floyd, that were basically Mm -hmm. calling the police on the police. (laughs) And he tried to really sell that to people and thought that people were going to buy that logic. The other point, he tried to put George Floyd on trial. George Floyd is not on trial. I've talked about this many times on this show. When the victim is a person that's of African-American descent, 
the justice system, the media, and sometimes even America. We like to paint that person as the That's perpetrator, good. as the person mm-hmm. that is evil. And it's infuriating. Again, I don't care about George Floyd's health conditions. I don't care about the grades that he got when he was in high school. I don't care if he didn't pay for the bus that he, the bus ride that he took. I don't care what type of drugs he had in his system. I don't care about any of that. Because at the end of the day, someone put a knee on this man for nine minutes in a position where he couldn't breathe. That is what this thing is about for me. The NFL has also fallen to that same category where they have not, again, stepped outside of that box. These owners have not stepped outside that box to diversify their portfolio. I hear you there. Man, hey, 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 listen. Hey, hey, Doug, hey, hey, you said it my fool there. Mine's going to be short and sweet and to the point. There's a lack of diversity on these coaching positions in front of us because there's a lack of diversity in ownership. Simply put. Mm-hmm. Simply put. You get, some, you get some minority ownerships, then you can then you can start then you start seeing more black more and more black head coaches or minority head coaches GMs wherever the type of coaches there is. The thing is getting in those positions because like you say you hit on the head a dub the Chicago Bears ownership, Holly, uh, Papa family. Hollis, right? It's family. The Bears is what one hundred and what one hundred and one hundred and one years. It's about to be one hundred and two next year. One hundred and two next year. The daughter is 98 or something like that. So mm-hmm. she's been around and been had her hands in that organization for almost a century. Yeah. And like you said, they do other organizations like that. They pass down to the families or or wherever the case may be. And instead of having another person with a fresh idea, a new face, minority, of course, to come in and kind of change the dynamics of this organization, it still stay in the family. And that's a problem too. You touched on something right there, and I'm about to go all the way in real quick. So, Uh-oh. Jules, thank okay. you so much for that point. So that goes back to what we were talking about earlier in this episode when it comes to reparations. Our community had its wealth stripped from it. Now, Jules just talked about the McCaskey family. Who's the hierarchy of that? It's George Hallis. That money has been passed down in that family from generation to generation to generation. That is generational wealth. That doesn't exist in this community. So, The fact of the matter is we don't even get accepted to even have a seat at this NFL table because guess what? Who's got all them kind of hundreds of millions of dollars to even buy a team? Who even has access to even get into those rooms? You see what Jay-Z's trying to do? He's trying to cozy up with the NFL. They still ain't giving him a time of day. Right. It's levels to this shit. These kids that are out here, it's up to us to be able to point Uh them in these directions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. we've been taught We'll see a young brother. Uh, I'm not saying all of us do this. Mm-hmm. But we'll see a young brother. He may be loud, boisterous. And we'll <laughs> say, man, that young brother. Is. <laughs> now, 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 I'm out here in AZ. I see a loud, a lot of loud, young, boisterous youth, and it ain't us. And they ain't out there calling each other ignorant. But you know why we do that? Because we feel like we always got to prove something mm. to somebody else. Mm. We feel like we always got to be accepted or show, you know what? We can uh, be like you guys. We can do this. We can fit in. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, right. Because, you, because you're right, because there's too much of that in this in this race. Because that's one thing Jules can tell you about me, brother. Long story short, interviewed at Google, ended up not getting a job. And I was like, man, I need to get out to California. The future's out there. Everything's happening. And uh, luckily, at that time, I was referred to one of my, my friend's girlfriends at the time, got a job at LinkedIn. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is my opportunity. This is great. And she was like, okay, cool. Like, let me work there for a couple months. Then I can refer you. I was like, uh-huh. okay, okay. You know, I'll, uh, I'm like chomping at the bit, right? This is my opportunity. I just got turned down to Google. I need to show them. And at that time, which was ironic, is that LinkedIn was also sharing the campus with Google. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> so I, I remember really, that. I remember that. Yep. <laughs> so I really wanted to get out of that campus, you know? And, Fle- uh, and flex on them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm on the right side this time, you know? Yep. But, uh, so yeah, a couple months went by and uh, I had some friends from the DC area that lived in San Diego. And this was like November 2014. And I uh, went out there and I had a, a ball. I'd always wanted to, you know, live in California anyway, like since like the days of like Rocket Power and Nickelodeon. I was like a sucker for the OC and Laguna Beach and all that stuff. I was like, I see myself out there. So that was uh, Thanksgiving 2014. I said, you know what? I'm going to move to California by April 2015, no matter what. Went back to Texas, hit her up. And she said, you know, this is this is a great time to apply for LinkedIn, applied for LinkedIn for a customer success role, because that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to, you know, work with customers, be on the forefront of product, but I didn't have the experience that they said I needed. So they said I could, you know, focus going into sales development. I was like, well, I really don't want to get into sales, but at the same time, like I'm willing to be the janitor. I just want to get into LinkedIn. Uh, because I believe in the company and, you know, helping out the world and, and jobs. So I interviewed for a sales development role and sort of fast-tracked the process. I had that sort of sales experience. The interview process went well. They were like, okay, your next interview will be, you know, over, you know, over video. And I was like, I got to get in front of these people. If I'm over video and I'm not in front of them, I'm not going to get this job because probably everybody else is applying for this job in California. I was like, I can fly out there next week. In fact, I can be out there tomorrow if you need me. And they're like, okay, like, well, we'll fly you out. So flew out to LinkedIn. I'll never forget this day was pouring. I was in like a, a three-piece suit. I walk into the office. Everyone's in t-shirts. And <laughs> oh, I was like, what? Because you know, I'm from Texas. Uh, you know, I was in Texas and from the East Coast, like people wore suits. So I stuck out like a, a uh, you know, Thor summon and uh, get, did the interview and it went well. It was intense. It was like five hours met with so many different people. At the end of the interview, my referral and I were upstairs. And this is sort of the crazy part of the culture of LinkedIn. I, I was upstairs having a beer with her in the office. There was this yep. thing called Tappy Hour on yep. Fridays where, you know, everyone came together as coworkers and, you know, shared shared stories, had beer, you know, whatever, went out with each other. And the recruiter pings me and she said, hey, you know, I was going to send you an email, but since you're already here, you know, why don't you come over to uh, come over to my desk? She saw me in Tappy Hour and I was like, okay, what's going on? And she's like, well, I just want to let you know you got the job. And I was like, oh my mm. gosh, same day, got the job. They wanted me to go, you know. So that's, that changed my life because that was sort of the, the ticket for, for two different things. One, I wanted to work in tech and I wanted to work in tech at a company that really I thought was changing the world and giving people uh, true economic opportunity, which I believe and still believe LinkedIn is doing. Mm-hmm. But also I wanted to start my own food tech company. And I realized the only way to really do that is to work in tech to understand how to, you know, network with people, build the right team, understand how tech works. And I thought that was the best opportunity for me. I had started a business before in college and, you know, I could do some wireframes, which are basically like mocking out what the user experience looked like just just out of like emotion how I want a user experience to be but I knew that I needed to work in tech so you know that was the story and that was my ticket 
to working in tech, moved to San Francisco in January 2015, beat my quota by four months. As you remember, I said by April 2015. So I was mm-hmm. you know, pumped. Moved there with nothing, had five suitcases, slept on couches and, and air mattresses. And uh, here we are today. I would oh. say Monopoly, bro. That was mine. Oh, man. Hey, that's, that's, that's for them billionaire minds right there, man. Man, it was, it was it was your. I don't know what happened to that billionaire mind, but oh. I'm telling you. <laughs> but dude, I I love that game, man. Especially too, I love being the bank. Now, when I was younger, I used to t- sometimes I used to take money out of the bank, but I don't do that now anymore. But uh, white collar criminals do it. Why can't I? Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, but, man. Everybody was doing that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but now, but now, no. You keep me honest now, like. You keep the bank a little bit further away. But yeah, I, mm-hmm. you know how easy it is to take a couple of them 500s. I'm like, shit, I need to buy some hotels and properties, man. Shit. That was my game, man. I, I liked it because it doesn't matter like what age you are. I mean, you could play that game with like, you know, your, your, your younger kids. You could play it with like oh, nieces yeah. and nephews. Mm-hmm. And shit, you could play it with adults. So that I love that game. No, it's, it's very relatable to the real world. And now, because my wife and I, we played it what, last year? And she, we get the version where you use a credit card. To get your money. You see, audience, now I ain't told y'all about this man and all this excess money he got. I ain't never heard of no Monopoly with no debit card. Yeah. All I know is paper money, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little machine. It's a little machine now, and um, you just put your little card in the in the thing, and, and that's how you get your money. So okay. if you want to pay for it, you want to buy a, a house or any property on the thing you land on, you know, you can just, just pay it that way. Okay, I see. Debit card, Monopoly. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and this guy told me that he grew up in Inglewood. I don't believe it, y'all. I don't, I don't believe it. No, it, it's true, folks. It's true. It <laughs> should have never gave y'all money, bro. <laughs> well, this season finale, I had to I had to go back to the network of, of people, man, that I really rock with and, and really, really respect. And I was like, man, we gotta get it. We gotta get this this guy on this show, man. We're gonna we're gonna end this season with a with a bang. So I got my brother, Rob Griggs, pulling up with us today. Rob, talk to him, man. How you doing there, fam? Yo, yo, yo. What's up, fellas? Y'all hear me good? Man, we hear you loud and clear, baby. Because I'm in the car like Derek Jackson, so, you know, he hears some funny noise. <laughs> <laughs> All good, man. How you, how... I'm good. Hey, Jules, number, number one, don't let Prez get at you about this Monopoly game. <laughs> Hey, just because he got the first Monopoly game ever, he had, <laughs> he had an upgrade. You know what I'm saying? Now, let me ask you, Big Rob, have you played the one with the with the debit card? No, I have not, man. But I've seen it in the store. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so I, okay. I, 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 I thought about getting it, but I was like, I was like, I've no. seen that in Target a bunch of times. Friends ain't in the store. He in them high end stores when they got my. Talk about you, dog. Oh. <laughs> And I got to say this first, fellas, thanks for having me on. I listened to last week's episode, and I heard y'all talking about the chicken that y'all eat. And, yeah, you uh-huh. know, I think, Jules, you said 10 pieces, and 10 wings, and yes, uh, yes, sir. seven, right? Yeah, seven wings. Y'all, y'all got to change the show back to pulling back the sheep, because y'all going to have the <laughs> item. <laughs> <laughs> I was hey. like, 10 wings? What are you doing? <laughs> Hey, this hey, pulling back the sheets. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey, big, hey, big Rob, real yes, quick, sir. I called Prez up because I get them wings. I was at work. I didn't get 10. I got six. Now, the bad part about it is as soon as I pick, get that, get my wings, I end up getting a call, a house caught on fire. Okay. So I'm out there. My wings is getting cold. 
<laughs> and I'm like, in my mind, I'm talking to these people and I'm like, I feel bad about that. The next door neighbor, because the house that caught on fire was vacant. So the next door house got the roof caught on fire. Damn. And I, I was talking to them. I felt so bad for them. But all I could think about was them damn wings getting cold. And I was pissed <laughs> off. Hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned for details on the kickoff of season three. Peace.